0: Gee. She-
1: If you're in the battle for the Lord and ride, keep on the firing line. If you win, my brother, surely you must fight. Keep on the firing line. There are many dangers that we all must face. If we die of fighting, it is no disgrace. Coward in the service, he will find no place, so keep on the line You must fight, be brave against all evil, never run nor even lag behind If you would win for God and the right, just keep on the firing line When we get to heaven, brother we'll be glad. Keep on the firing line. How we'll praise the Savior for the call we had. Keep on the firing line. When we see the souls that we have helped to win, leading them to Jesus from the paths of sin, with a shout of welcome we will all march in. So keep on the firing line. You must fight. Be brave against all evil, never run nor even lag behind. If you would win for God and the right just keep on the firing line. You must fight, be brave against all evil. Never run nor even lag behind. If you would win for Keep on the firing line If you would win for God and the righteous, keep on the firing on the firing line. Man, they did such a good job, they almost blew up the sound system. Wow. Amen. Well, we have with us Brother Coral, and boy, I tell you what, he did a great job this morning. Looking forward to what the Lord has for us tonight. Pretty much told Brother Coral, since I had to put him on such a short leash this morning, that we kind of extended the leash quite a bit tonight, okay? So he's going to preach tonight. You sit back, enjoy it, and focus your attention. Don't lose sight of what's being said, and let the, Holy, let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart. Man, I tell you what, what a great, great job he did. Looking forward to what God has for us tonight. Hey, listen, this isn't a coincidence tonight that he's here. It's not just by chance that he's preaching this evening. This is God's divine providence, and this is exactly what we all needed, okay? And so let's open our hearts, open our minds and ears, and let's let God do a mighty work in our lives. Brother Coral.
2: Amen. All right, amen. I uh, didn't say anything about the book table this morning for the sake of time. And uh, now, usually, you see a stack of books, usually what happens is when the book sales are down in the morning, I bring a stack of books to the pulpit and read them to the people. (laughs) Because after I go to the worker writing them, if you're not going to buy them, I guess I need to read them to you. It makes for a long night. Uh, Don't look at me like that. You brought this on yourself. Uh, So... I hope you take a little time, go by the table. I think you'll find some things, some excellent music by my wife and daughters. They do not let me sing. <laughs> Preacher offered me a songbook, and I said, that's different. They usually hide mine. <laughs> Nobody wants me to find it and locate it. They tell me, when you sound like you've been gargling a you probably ought to stick to preaching. Let somebody have some voice quality sing. And uh, so there was some excellent music out there, many beautiful songs my wife has written uh, on those. And then, of course, a lot of books. She's written some, I've written some. And I really, I'm not going to take a lot of time to give you a, a lot of detail, but there have been a lot of books written since I was here, and I'm sure that most of you, one or two of you, may have bought everything I have when I was here before. Uh, but uh, most of you don't have all the old stuff, but I just want to make you aware... ...of a few of the newer books and some of the content, at least what uh, what they're about. This is almost self-explanatory if you've been saved a while, the whole armor of God. Dealing with Ephesians chapter 6. And um, let me simply say this to you. Uh, we're engaged in a spiritual war. And it behooves us to use everything God has supplied us with both to protect ourselves and uh, to fight the good fight of faith. And uh, for instance, you say, so I've read that passage. I have it memorized. I know, okay, well, tell me something. What is the helmet of salvation? That's not the helmet of getting saved because he's talking to people that are saved and telling them to put on the helmet. Uh, and I deal with that in there. It's going to be pretty hard for me to put on the whole or if I can't really distinguish in a practical sense what it is. And uh, I promise you, I don't have any books that you can't understand. I promise that. I mean, you know, because if you couldn't understand them, I couldn't have written them. Uh, But seriously, uh, they're written in a manner so that they're practical. And uh, I try to keep things simple. Now, you can take, you know, Brother Howes used to always talk about simplicity being the vehicle by which you transmit profundity, you take something profound and make it so simple. Everybody says, why Why didn't I see that? Or you can go ahead and be a great theologian and confuse everybody and they say, wow, is he smart. He must be smart, because I can't understand the thing he said. But uh, these books are understandable and they're helpful. They're written to a need. Uh, I don't rate just to rate. I'm constantly writing to a need. And if some of these guys had behave, I could write some more doctrinal books. But I'm constantly writing to a need and trying to deal with something where somebody's muddying the water, and I'm just trying to give a biblical perspective on that topic. I don't ever name the people that are muddying the water. That wouldn't help anyway. If you got rid of one of them, three more would rise up in their place. But uh, there's a book back there on excuses for conformity, to the world and it's primarily on apparel and that's a tremendous battleground uh... for the people of god and the enemy uses it if it was not such a stronghold that uh, wouldn't be such an issue but the devil really does not want people to get that area right and he works on it constantly uh, none of these books are mean hateful i just do that in the pulpit <laughs> but seriously none of the books mean or hateful but I promise you, you'll get Bible answers and responses. Uh, for instance, just let me give you a... And I don't have time to get into this. I do it in the book in great detail. Everybody wore the same thing in Bible time. You ever heard somebody say that? I hope you hadn't said that. But Deuteronomy 22, 5 and 6, he said, "...the woman shall not wear that which pertaineth to the man, neither shall man put on a woman's garment." For do not, just without defining that, to sound to you like everybody wore the same thing? I mean, does it sound that way to you? And we're in the Old Testament there, and you said old times and Bible times. Well, old times are Bible times. we still got one. Still Bible times. It's not a past tense book. But uh, I answer that from the Bible. I respond to that from the Bible. And uh, I don't think you can argue with what's in there because it's Bible truth. And uh, so I hope you take a look at it. And then there's a book back there on necessary division. I wrote that book after I read a book on unnecessary division. <laughs> it was justifying every kind of, I mean, you shouldn't take a stand on anything. You're being divisive if you take a stand. But the Bible says every time Jesus spoke, the crowd was divided. You think he was divisive? No, truth is divisive without even attempting to divide because truth is absolute. And if you have absolute truth, you have to get on one side of the line or the other. Uh, It's impossible to be on both sides at the same time. So absolute truth causes people to make a decision one way or the other. And uh, so uh, then uh, there's a book on salvation's eternal, not dispensational. There are not 19 plans of salvation, one for each age. There's one plan from the foundation of the world. Christ was slain before the foundation of the world. That is plan A. It wasn't plan B after plan A, the law failed. It was always the plan from the beginning. And uh, once again, a lot of Bible doctrine in there. Then my wife has a uh, newer book on Be of Good Courage. Uh, You ladies will thoroughly enjoy her books, and any effeminate men would enjoy those too. (laughs) Just thought I'd throw it in, see if you're awake. But uh, she has some very helpful stuff. She's a great encourager. She'll be a blessing to you ladies. And then there's a new outline book, 101 Sermon Outlines. It has Billy Sunday's picture on it. It's not his outlines. They're my outlines. I just thought he looked a little better. His picture was a little better than mine, so I put him on there. Amen. And uh, so those are out there, and then there's a whole series of children's books. This is the newest one, What could a Little Boy Do? John chapter 6, The Lad and His Lunch, and uh, those things are on the table. Uh, there are package deals. If you're interested in a lot of stuff, ask me. I'll do the best I can on it. if you get a bunch of stuff. Some people have already done that, and I reduced the price on some things. And then there's a book on We Are Not Under the Law, But Under Grace, You ever heard somebody say that? We're not under the law. We're under grace. Now what they're doing is objecting to biblical standards or to any restrictive principle. That statement is in the Bible two times. Romans chapter 6 verse 14 and 15 in consecutive verses in the chapter that is devoted to the crucified life where he also tells us we are to reckon ourselves dead, indeed unto sin, but alive unto God. And if you look at verse 14, it's apparent that he did not loosen things up when he extended grace. Uh, Romans 6, verse 14 said, Sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? For we are not under the law, but under grace. He said, Grace empowered me to live victoriously. I won't live sinlessly, but I'm no longer under the dominion of sin. The power of grace and the indwelling Holy Spirit, me becoming a new creature by the grace of God, now empowered me to live a victorious life. And then the next verse, he saw this crowd coming. He said, Shall we sin? Because we are not under the law, but under grace, God forbid. Now, let me say this to you, and this is not the sermon, but uh, the key word in that statement, we are not under the law, but under grace, the key word is not the word grace. As wonderful as the grace of God is, that's not the key word in those two statements. Uh, The key word is the word under And Webster, in his 1828 dictionary, tells us that to be under something is to be in a state of liability to whatever it is that I am under. Is there anybody here that is not in a state of liability to grace? Then why do we act like it owes us something? Why do we feel so free to tax it further when we're already indebted to it beyond measure? Huh? The second definition that he gives is to be under something is to be in its tutelage or to be a good pupil with passing grades. And the Bible tells us in Titus chapter 2, the grace of God that bringeth salvation, the exact same grace that saved me apart from works, the grace of God that bringeth salvation, hath appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness... And worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. You ever somebody say, well, the culture, the culture, that's the excuse for everything in this day. The culture. Yeah. Since when are you and I supposed to be a product of the culture? I thought we were supposed to infuse the culture with Christianity. Amen. 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 But he said... That grace teaches me to deny ungodliness, to deny worldliness, to deny the lust of the flesh, and to live soberly. That's by principle, not by impulse. Righteously. Uh, and uh, that's according to the scriptures that are always right. And godly in a manner that's pleasing to God and glorifies Him. I wonder how's your report card looked tonight? Grace is not teaching you to live loose. It's teaching you to deny some things and to embrace some things that are holy. Then finally, he, the third definition Webster gives of the word under uh, is to be willfully submissive to the governing power of whatever I am under. So if I am under something, I'm not under the law. Well, How to get up under the law? According to Galatians 3.23, uh, until faith came, we were kept under the law. And the lost man is still under the condemnation of the law. We didn't get out from under the law by some new dispensation. We get out from under the law when we put our faith in Jesus Christ and experience the saving grace of God. Huh? The lost man still under the condemnation of the law. He wouldn't be going to hell. huh. When Jesus died on Calvary, he did not nail the moral law to the cross. He nailed the ceremonial law. Colossians 2 verse 14 said he nailed the handwriting of ordinances to the cross uh, Not talking about and if you get to the book of Hebrews, you find out what the ordinances were it had to do with washings and cups and saucers and sacrifices and the ironic priesthood. He ended that, because it was a picture. And when I have the real thing, I don't really need a picture. You know, when when I'm on the road, I'll look at a picture of my wife. When I'm home, I don't look at a picture. I look at my wife. And if I fall in the river, don't throw me a picture of a lifeguard. I need the real thing. <laughs> uh? But Jesus fulfilled everything that the priesthood of Aaron pictured and there was no need for that picture pointing forward because it was now past tense. And we look to Calvary, not to something future that's going to happen, but back to the actual event that took place. So I hope you take advantage of the material on the table. Uh, you know, if I'm not careful, I, I'll preach those books. I've been really working hard at not doing that tonight. Uh, but I guess it didn't do too good. But anyway... I hope you take a look at what's out there. I believe you find some things would be a help to you as a Christian, and that's my desire. I don't sell books to make money, although I certainly have to pay the printer, and I have to pay my staff that works on the books and uh, so on. Uh, But uh, that's not a money-making scheme. It is a means of communicating Bible truth to places I will not physically be able to be all the time. And so hope you take advantage of that. And one other thing I wanted to do very quickly, if it's okay, is it okay me to say something about the paper? Okay, Uh, I don't have a very large stack of envelopes here, probably 40 or something, 35, 40, something like that. And these are half-price envelopes. It's normally $18 a year for the revival fires. That's a dollar a month. It is a 32-page paper. And it's just chock full of good Bible information every month and uh, 12 months a year and uh, I have nine dollar envelopes and I think I have enough probably for every household to take one and if we don't you see me at the table and I'll put it on the three by five card and work it out from there but if I could get a couple of ushers to help me uh, we do take out-of-state cash <laughs> boy I'm telling you you're really slow tonight it's not going to be very good during the preaching uh, We take credit cards. I'll send them back when they reach the limit. (laughs) But seriously, uh, you can put cash, you can put a check in here, written to revival fires, but $9. Now, folks, if you think $9 for 12 issues of a paper, 32 pages thick, is a money-making scheme, you need to start a paper and get rich like me. Uh, But seriously... I would love to see you get the paper once we go to the effort of putting it together. I'd like to see it go to thousands more people, and it does go to thousands, tens of thousands of people now. But I'd like to see it go to a lot more, and I think it'll be a blessing to you. Uh, But if I get a couple ushers to help me, and if you would like one of these envelopes, we're going to do this quick. I'm not going to collect them back up now. I'm going to read the text and preach in a moment here. Uh, but what I'm going to do is you can drop these off at the book table, give them my way for myself. If you would like one of the envelopes, if you would, please slip your hand up. These ushers will get one to you as quickly as possible, and I think we're going to have enough, but if we do happen to run out, and everybody that wants one does not get one, let me know, and we'll take care of it at the table tonight. Okay, I think we still have... One back here. Do we have anybody over here? I have one back here that didn't get, fellas. To my left, one on the back row, two on the back row, and one over here. One over here. I'm sorry, all the way over here to my left. You out? You guys still have some? How many you got? I think we have three more or two more. One there, one over here on the end. We get everybody? Okay, wonderful. And you, you brother, you have to get those last couple yourself. you know, <laughs> fill them out in hand. <laughs> Since you ended up with. Anybody else that didn't get one that would like one? I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me tonight to Revelation chapter 12. Appreciate your patience uh, in allowing me to make those announcements. And by the way, preacher, you were joking, but this stack of books is for you. They will not go back to the table. They'll stay here. And they're yours to take to the office. And anything else on my table that you would like to have, you're welcome to. Just stop by and pick it up. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11. If you have located that, would you please stand with me? Stretch your legs one last time while we read the text and pray. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11. The Bible says, "...and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb." And by the word of their testimony, and they love not their lives unto the death. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we love you. We thank you for your blessing today. And pray, Lord, you'd bless again tonight. I yield to you, please. Spirit of God, would you fill and use me in these moments to be a help to your people, a blessing. And I pray you'd prepare every heart. I pray you'd bind the enemy, the strong man, off the service. And uh, we plead the blood of Christ on this place. And Lord, will give you the praise and the glory for all that you do. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated, please. Once you notice Revelation 12, verse 11, is talking about overcoming the evil one. I am very aware of the context prophetically. But I want to extract a principle here that is true in every age. Uh, he gives us three elements that are necessary To be an overcomer in any age in any time the Bible said they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and there is no victory over Satan over the devil unless I've experienced blood redemption if I am lost in my sin uh, he can do just about what he pleases with me and according to John 8 verse 44 Jesus was speaking to a bunch of religious hypocrites And he said, "'Ye are of your father, the devil, "'and the lusts of your father ye will do.'" Uh, The father in Scripture is considered the authority figure. And he said to these Jews that were religious and lost, "'Ye are of your father, the devil. "'He's the authority in your life, "'and the lusts of your father ye will do.'" You're under his authority, his administration.'" The only thing that gets me out from under that oppressive spirit is when I get born of the spirit, I experience the blood of Christ and its cleansing and redemption. And then he goes on and says, and the word of their testimony. Now, I'll spend most of my time on that one, so I won't stop there too long at this moment, but he talks about the word of our testimony. And if I said to you, could I have a word with you, Uh, do you think I want to speak to you? And if he talks about the word of our testimony, does it imply that our testimony has a voice? It speaks. It says something. And uh, we'll come back to that in a moment. Then he said that they love not their lives unto the death. You know, these people in Scripture, like Daniel, like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, like David, when he went into the Valley of Elah, like Paul, when he set his face to go uh, to Jerusalem for the feast, uh, you know, the truth is they knew that they were putting their lives in their hands, but there was something bigger than life, a cause that was greater than... And I believe somewhere along the line, we in independent Baptist circles have lost that. David said, is there not a cause? Something bigger than life, something worthy of going into the Valley of Eden, something worthy of facing a nine-foot, nine-inch tall giant that everybody assumes is unbeatable, and uh, you are willing to take that stand. Uh, David found out that though he was not big enough, God was. He said to the giant, The battle is the Lord's. You come to me with a sword and a spear, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth. That's God's fighting name. Anytime you see the Lord of hosts in Scripture, God is leading the host of heaven into battle. He has never lost, it has never even been close. And uh, David said, uh, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he said, the battle's the Lord's. How'd that turn out? Uh, It doesn't matter how big the enemy is. But David loved not his life unto death. Daniel loved not his life unto death. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. There was something they were unwilling to compromise, unwilling to concede, uh, even if it cost them their lives. And if you remember in Daniel chapter 3, the three Hebrew children facing the burning, fiery furnace, they didn't have a guarantee that they would be delivered. They said, our God, they said, if it be so, O king, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. And he will deliver us, but if not, we still won't bow. We won't worship thy gods. Huh? Why? Because there's something bigger than life. We love not our lives unto the death. We're not going to try to save our own skin by compromise. So he said, if I'm going to be victorious over Satan, the enemy, it's first by the blood of the Lamb, second uh, by the word of my testimony, and third uh, that I have a cause that's bigger than life, something I am willing to die for, Something I believe so deeply, it does not matter about the cost. It's not about prospering, it's about honoring God. Now, he says the word of their testimony, and your testimony has a voice. You ever heard a little jingle, your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks? Most of us, we talk a good talk and give people the truth out of the Bible. But sometimes our testimony is drowning out what we're saying with our voice. The word of our testimony is nullifying what we're saying. It's destroying the credibility what people see. Let me ask you a question. If you heard something, if you heard one thing and you saw something else, you're going to believe what you heard or what you saw. Well, you don't believe what you saw, but you want people to believe what you say when they see something different? Huh? You think they're supposed to believe it because you say it, but there's no credibility to it. Your testimony is saying something very different. You say, well, what do you mean by testimony? By the way, uh, we're supposed to profess to be Christians if we are. The Bible says in Psalm 107, verse 2, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy. It's right for me to profess to be a Christian if I am. But I better back it up with my testimony, the visible physical evidence. Uh, you say, well, uh, what is the testimony? Is that what I say? No. Exodus 25 and verse 16, uh, God said, And thou shalt put the, the, into the ark the testimony. The testimony was the visible physical evidence To back something up. What was in the Ark of the Covenant? This is not Noah's Ark. The Ark of the Covenant. What was in there? Well, there was Aaron's rod that budded. That was testimony. That was the visible, physical evidence that God had chosen the tribe of Aaron for the priesthood. What else is in there? Well, there was the pot of manna. That was the visible, physical evidence that God had provided for His people In their wanderings. What else was in there? Two tables of stone with the Ten Commandments engraven on them. That was the visible physical evidence that God had given the law to Moses. Now, every one of those things was verbally communicated from generation to generation, but the testimony existed. The undeniable, visible physical evidence existed. I wonder, is what you tell people you are, does the visible evidence exist? If if you if somebody was trying to convict you in a court of law of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to do it based on evidence, hard evidence? You know... God said we're supposed to have a testimony, and it's important. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, the Bible said, Man looketh on the outward appearance, but God looketh on the heart. Now, there are a lot of people that try to read into that verse that God is disinterested in the outside. All he cares about is the heart. There is nothing in that text that implies that. And if you read the context, you have Samuel coming to anoint the next king, and when he comes, uh, he sees Eliab, David's older brother, who is tall, dark, and handsome, and he said, Surely the Lord's anointed. And uh, that's when God told him, He said, Don't look on his outward appearance. He said, uh, I'm looking on his heart. This guy does not have the heart of a king. He won't be a good king. His heart's not right. And uh, so that's the context. But it does say in that verse, man looketh on the outward appearance. Does it not? God looketh on the heart. It's not implying that God doesn't care about the outside, but he's not fooled by the outside. You know, there are a lot of carnal people that can make the outside look good. And the inside is corrupt. Now, listen to me. In Matthew 23... The Bible tells us in verse 25 that Jesus rebuked some people. And he said, you wash the outside of the cup and the platter. You wash what people can see, the outside. But he said, uh, they are full of extortion and excess. Now watch what he said the solution was. Wash the inside and leave the outside dirty, right? No, no. He said wash first, not only. Cleanse or wash first the inside that the outside may be clean also. If I understand that verse, Jesus said the outside could be clean and the inside could be dirty. But if the inside's clean, the outside will be clean. So if I cleanse first, not only the inside and my heart is right, the outside will follow suit and be clean also. People are always talk about what wonderful Christians they are in their heart. Well, maybe you ought to be able to see it on the outside. huh? Maybe it should be a little more apparent than that. But he said, man looketh on the outward appearance. Uh, look, I can't see your heart. The only thing I can tell is what you look like on the outside. That's all I can see. Amen. You know, I am a buck hunter. I'm not just deer hunter. I'm a buck hunter. I'm always looking for horns. You don't believe that. Just see me. I'll show you some pictures on my phone. I'm a buck hunter. Now, please listen to me. If I'm on my deer stand and you are a doe, do not come under my stand sporting a big rack of horns on top of your head because I'm not going to give you a physical exam before I shoot. You look like a buck to me. And I'm going to go by what you look like on the outside. Huh? Let me ask a question. How many of you have ever seen a dog? Well, somebody hasn't been out in a while, huh? (laughs) How do you know it was a dog? How do you know it wasn't a cat? Did you give it a physical exam? Did you check its genetics and its heart? How do you know it was a dog? Oh, you mean you can tell them apart by what they look like on the outside? Oh, how many of you have ever seen a cow? How do you know it was a cow? How do you know it wasn't a horse? Huh? Oh, you mean you can distinguish them by how they look. You can actually tell them apart by looking. Why is it that everything in the world is distinguishable by what it looks like except a born again Christian? Yeah, come on. Why is it, and by the way, God told us what we're supposed to be so that we have a testimony before men, and my testimony has a voice, and oftentimes it speaks louder than what I'm saying with my mouth. My testimony says something different, and they're looking at me, and when they hear the word of my testimony, Uh, The word of my witness loses its power, its credibility with them. They don't pay much attention to me. Uh, You know, the Bible does say that we're ambassadors for Christ. You know, an ambassador comes from a foreign country to represent that country. He did not come here to blend in and to become everything America was. He came here to represent the homeland. And could I tell you that my citizenship is in heaven, my king is Jesus, and I'm supposed to be representing the homeland, and I am to be not conformed to this world but to be transformed by the renewing of my mind, and I am to have a testimony in this world that's heavenly in nature that represents the homeland, that honors the king of kings. I'm afraid we get absorbed uh, like most of Daniel's crowd, You know, when Daniel was carried away, there were about 10,000 young people carried away in that captivity. I can only find four that took a stand for God. That means that 9,996 of them, for all practical purposes, were absorbed into the Babylonian culture and began to live like Babylonians. Huh? Is that the majority? You something. well, everybody's doing it? Well, first of all, that's not true. But Daniel could have used that excuse. Well, I'm not going to stay right with God. I'm going to eat the king's meat and drink his wine. Meat's offered to idols. The wine's alcoholic beverage. That stuff's forbidden. But I'm going to partake because everybody's doing it. Since when is that a valid argument for a born-again child of God to justify anything? Whether therefore you eat or you drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. He said, add to your faith virtue, moral excellence. Huh? You said, well, what's so bad about? Let me ask a question. What verse in the Bible says, be not so bad, for I'm not so bad? Maybe that's in yours, it's not in my King James. Huh? So you say, well, what's that have to do with anything? Well, you're asking me what's so bad, and I'm asking you where your authority to ask such foolish question is. God never told us to be not so bad. He said, be ye holy, for I am holy. He said, can two walk together, except they be agreed. He said, come out from among them, be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. He said those things. But... People are constantly laboring to justify whatever their flesh yearns for in this world. You know, in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 12, Paul told Timothy, "'Be thou an example of believers.'" You know, somebody that's an example is living an exemplary life. In what areas did he say that? He said, "'In word, what you say. In conversation, that's your manner of life and how you do business.'" He said in charity, those are acts of love. He said in spirit, that's talking about your attitude and demeanor. He said in faith, and faith is dependency upon God and expectancy from God to the point that the Word of God is enough to move me to action. I don't need a sign, a wonder, a tingle, a feeling. I don't even need an explanation as to why God said it or how it's going to work if I'm operating by faith in the Word of God. The word of God alone will move me to immediate action. Huh? All I have to do is find out what God said. But he said, in faith and in purity. You know, he talks about pure religion and he talks about vain religion. And those are the contrasting things. One's vain, empty, worthless, pointless, and the other is pure And unadulterated, uncompromised, uh, and God wants me to have that pure religion undefiled before God and the Father. So He tells us this is what He expects in Titus 2 and verse 7. He said, In all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works. You know, a pattern is something that you use to make things turn out like they're supposed to. If you're sowing, you use a pattern. And if you deviate from it, it may not turn out like it's supposed to. Matter of fact, almost certainly won't. Now, you may want it to turn out different, but if you want it to turn out like it's supposed to and like the pattern says, the Lord Jesus is the pattern, and you and I are supposed to be at least a resemblance of him uh, so that somebody has a pattern to follow, they're not supposed to have to figure it out because I claim to be one thing and act like something else. I am supposed to be a pattern. You are supposed to be a pattern. You're supposed to be an example of believers and live an exemplary life. Not what's not so bad, but what sets a good biblical example for people. You know, in Acts 11 and verse 26, the Bible tells us that in Antioch, he said they were called Christians first in Antioch. Didn't say they called themselves Christians, it said those who observed their manner of life called them Christians. A Christian is not just a saved person. It certainly starts there. But a Christian is a copy of the original Christ. You say, well, I can't be as good as Jesus. Oh, no. A copy is never as good as the original. But you should be able to tell what it is a copy of. There should be a resemblance enough to identify the two. Now, it's important to note that the Bible said they assembled with these people a whole year before they were called Christians. Now, if you know Acts 5 and verse 42, it tells us the habit of the early church, that daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. They didn't come to church once a week, twice a week, three times a week. They went to church every day. That's what it says. So if they assembled a whole year, that would mean then that they had assembled with these people for 365 days straight and after that they were called christians Say, what are you getting at i'm getting at this if i get you in church for 365 days straight it'd make christian out of you yeah. <laughs> amen i'm telling you it would impact your life beyond measure it would leave its imprint on you And the truth is, do you realize how many hours you spend being bombarded by the world, by the flesh, by sin, by the devil? And how little time, just three times a week, if you come to every service, how little time we get in the Word of God for God to stamp His image on our character. And if you're right with God, you have a daily devotional time where you spend time in the Word of God. But I'm telling you, you can't get too much preaching. And if we're ever going to have revival in America, the first thing we need is a revival of church attendance. In Hebrews 10, verse 25, he said, We're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. He said, Some folks have bad manners when it comes to church attendance. As the manner of some is. But exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Uh, what day? When Jesus comes in the air. You're going to wish you were sitting there then. Huh? Huh? But he said, we're not forsake the assembling. The word assembling there is a word that speaks of the completion of the collection. Uh, He said, it has to be assembled to be used. In Acts 2 and verse 1, they were all, A-L-L, in one place, in one accord, and the power of God fell and revival broke out, 3,000 saved, 3,000 baptized. You think God can't still do that? He had an assembled church. Have you ever purchased anything in a box unassembled? Have, did you try to use it while it was unassembled? Have you ever begun to assemble it and found out that you were missing one piece? One piece! Wasn't the biggest piece, wasn't the most visible piece, but without this piece, it was not functional. Huh? Now you know how God feels. You expect him to bless an unassembled church and use it to sweep across the city and send revival. The first thing is gonna to have to happen. Most churches, and probably this one, probably most churches I preach in, if not all of them, the last time they were completely assembled was the day they organized and signed the charter. From that service on, somebody was always missing. And our feeble excuses. All the things that we think is so much more important. No wonder our neighbors don't think anything. See, too many times we're not where we're supposed to be, and they're watching. They We claim to be saved. Uh, but everything else takes preeminence because all of it's really a lot more important than church. That really sends a great message to them. Uh, but... Paul talked to some people at Thessalonica in 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 6-8, through he said and ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples. Ye were in samples, good examples samples of the real thing. You know, if you go in a store they have samples out what that's supposed to be is a a small bottle of what they're trying to sell a big bottle of. And the samples there are supposed to be the exact same thing. So if I try the sample and I come back and get the bottle, I get the same thing here that I sampled here. Huh? He said, ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia, for from you, from you sounded out... The word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Watch this. Your faith to God word is spread abroad so that we need not say anything. He said, you physically can speak to the people in Macedonia and Achaia. That's the area in which you live. But he said, your influence, your testimony has far exceeded your physical realm. He said, it's gone everywhere and affected people. You know, in James chapter 2 and verse 18, he said, Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Faith cannot be seen except by the works that it produces, the product. And in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, have you ever noticed, uh, that's not talking about works, but in every case, Abraham left, or the Chaldees. And Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice and Noah built an ark to the saving of his house. And every time it's talking about their faith. But it produced something more. Their faith had a visible element, something people could see, the substance of their faith. And Romans 16 verse 26 talks about the obedience of faith. Do you realize you've never acted in faith and in disobedience at the same time? Because faith is dependency upon God, expectancy from God to the point that the Word of God settles it. So if I'm operating by faith, I don't even hesitate to do what God says. But when I dig my heels in, or I change directions, or I refuse, or hesitate, I'm not operating by faith. The obedience of faith. The Bible said they overcame him by uh, the word of their testimony. The word of their testimony, your testimony, has a powerful influence. It has a voice that speaks louder than the word of your witness. And please don't misunderstand me. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. They are not going to get saved unless they hear the gospel. You need to witness and tell them the truth. But while you do, in order for your witness to be credible, the word of your testimony needs to agree with the word of your witness. You tell them how wonderful it is to have a transformed life be on your way to heaven, and then you live like you're not going there. Huh? Talk about belonging to him and how great that is, and then you're trying to fit into a heathen world because all their trends. You don't want them to think you're different. So I'm afraid they'll think I'm weird. Are you kidding me? Have you looked around lately, and you're worried about them thinking you're weird? Are you kidding? Come on. I see stuff, I nearly fall over chairs in airports. I mean, honestly, it's amazing what people do to their bodies, how they mar their bodies. And ugly is in. It's popular. People that God made and they were pretty at birth and have that potential now, they have labored to mar their bodies to be repulsive and make things ugly that were beautiful or pretty. Huh? Sad. But there's the word of your witness, and that's vital. You shall be witnesses to me. After the whole ghost has come upon you, you shall be witnesses to me, both in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. That's all about your verbal witness. But there is also the word of your testimony that he speaks of in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11. We talked about the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. Verse 5, talking about Enoch, it says this, uh, that before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. It's not talking about what he said. He didn't walk around telling, around, "But I please God, I please God, I please God." That's your profession. What you profess. This is his testimony. This is the physical, visible, physical evidence. This is what'll hold up in the courtroom. This is what's undeniable. This is what can't be refuted. huh We're going to see a couple of other illustrations of that in the scriptures. But it talks about Enoch, he had this testimony. He had a testimony, not just a word of witness, but the word of his testimony, and it agreed. You know, it's important that those two things agree, because if they don't, uh, it creates confusion. Two things agreeing establish something. Remember in John 8, verse 17 and 18, Jesus speaking to the scribes and Pharisees, He said, it is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. Verse 18, I am one that bear witness of myself, and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. He said, that's two. What was he dealing with? Well, he was quoting... The principle that's in Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 6. When God gave the law, He was telling them what was necessary. If somebody was guilty of a capital crime, uh, before you could execute that judgment, there had to be at least two or three witnesses. One witness was not sufficient in Deuteronomy 17, 6 says, At the mouth of two witnesses, or three witnesses, shall he that is worthy of death be put to death, but at the mouth of one witness, he shall not be put to death. There must be at least two witnesses. And a little bit later, Jesus, talking to a bunch of these same religious people, in Matthew 18, 16 said, In the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. If something's established... It is proven true, or it's a settled matter. It is solid evidence. It's established. This is not in question any longer. At the mouth of two or three witnesses, every principle is established. Now, if the only thing they hear is the word of your witness, and you don't have a testimony that backs that up, and maybe you have a testimony that actually contradicts it, what you're telling them is not confirmed. It's not established to them. Uh, maybe that's why some of these people you're trying to win don't pay much attention. I don't know. I mean, but I'm telling you that they expect more of you than you would like to believe. And in John 5, verse 36, Jesus said, But I have greater witness than that of John, for the works which the Father has sent me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father sent me. And we understand the works he was talking about. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. He came to give his life life a ransom for many. We understand that. But my question to you is, do your works bear witness? Do they back up the word of your witness, what you say? Do your works testify to that? Does your testimony itself, what people see, does it agree with what you claim to be a reality in your life? You know, folks really expect more of you than you would like like to believe. In John chapter 12... Remember in John chapter 11, Jesus called Lazarus forth from the dead. And in John chapter 12, there was a feast. And in verse 9, it said, Much people of the Jews therefore knew that he, Jesus, was there. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. They had heard, but that wasn't enough. They wanted to see. They had heard. But they showed up, they wanted to see. And they need to hear because faith cometh by hearing. But they want to see too. They're looking for more. They're looking for something different in you. They expect more of you than you would like to believe. You know, um, I got saved on a Sunday night. And I don't have time to go into great detail. But when I got saved, I was a bouncer. I was involved in a lot of things I shouldn't be involved in. And I got saved on a Sunday night. And on Monday morning, I got saved in my bedroom after church service. They gave a weak invitation. I escaped, but the Holy Ghost of God left with me, (laughs) kept convicting me, and I got saved that night. But the next day, I went to a gas station in the morning, and there was a fellow that I ran into that I knew. He was a holiness preacher's son, but he was also a drug dealer. Sadly. But I knew him for years and had spent time. We'd fellowshiped as far as the world's fellowship. And uh, so I ran into him at the gas station. He said, hey, man. He said, let's go toke one up. I said, no. He said, come on. I said, no. I said, no, no I'm, not, I'm not going. He said, come on, man. I'll use my dope. And I said, yeah, I don't, I don't want to, Dean. He looked at me. He said, did you get saved? And I said, yeah, yeah, I did. He said, well, don't be ashamed of it. So I've been saved less than 24 hours, and I have a drug dealer rebuking me for not speaking up (laughs) for the Lord. (laughs) He expected me, if I was saved, to tell him. Huh? I had a lot of baggage, and I got saved, and I started selling them before I quit smoking. And I'm standing there witnessing to a guy one day, and he looked at me. He said, "Hey, he said, don't be telling me about Jesus while you're standing there puffing on that weed. I don't want to hear it." Now you'd be glad. Just let the world work on you for a little bit. You'd be glad to get back to me. I'm not trying to kill you. I'm trying to help you, buddy. They'll blacken your eyes, huh? I mean, he put it on me. He said, "I don't want to hear that. Just while you're standing there puffing that weed, I don't care what you got to say. Not credible to me. I don't want to hear it." Well. About a month after I got saved, I pulled in at a gas pump. It was a place that had pinball machines in there. A bunch of my buddies were in there hanging out, my old buddies. I wasn't running with them anymore. I got out of my vehicle, started pumping gas, and I had my rock music blaring. You know, <laughs> the doors of the vehicle are breathing. People 30 feet away are vibrating because of the bass. Huh? I pulled in, I got this music blaring, and I started pumping gas. And one of my buddies come out and said, thought you got saved. I said, what do you mean thought he got saved? I did get saved. He said, if you got saved, what are you doing listening to the devil's music? Same music he listened to. Hey, he knew. And he expected more out of me. He didn't expect me to get saved. Keep listening to the music. Keep smoking the cigarette. Keep doing the other stuff, huh? Now, you remember, do you remember when you were lost and Christians would witness to you? And you remember how critical you were of them and how you knew everything that was wrong with them and you criticized them for all kinds of stuff that they did. And then you got saved and got amnesia. Because when you were lost, you knew everything that was wrong. You got saved, now you're telling everybody it's not wrong. Huh? I'm telling you that these people expect more of you. They they have to hear the gospel. They need to hear, but they still want to see. When you tell them Jesus rose from the dead and that he saved you from hell and made you a new creature in Christ, they need to hear that, but they want to see the new creature. Not the same old sinner, pre-salvation, uh, operating in the flesh, worldly and carnal, that's not what they're looking for. They expect more than that. And they deserve a better example than that. Right, amen. God expects more out of us than that. You know, the maniac there in Luke 8, verse 35, the Bible said they had heard about the Jesus casting the demons out of this fella, And uh, they had heard that he was sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Isn't it amazing? Whenever he was under the influence of the devil, he was naked. And by the way, Uh, When Peter took his fisher's coat off, he had linen breeches on. God called him naked and he had his upper body uncovered. You listen to me, fellas? Huh? Isaiah 47 says, When you uncover the thigh, you've uncovered your nakedness. The thigh starts right at the kneecap. I'm watching that stuff creep up in our circles. Yes, sir. Huh? Getting loose. I'm not talking about anything I've seen here today. I'm just telling you, I travel 52 weeks a year. I'm on the road all the time. I mean, good churches like this church. I mean, churches where the preacher stands and where the standard is right. But I'm just watching it just creep up. Necklines are creeping down. Huh? What is the object? I don't get it. I don't understand. What are we thinking? Five men have dirty minds. Well, what's yours like? That's quiet, isn't it? I heard a pin drop on the carpet. Huh? But honestly, folks, I'm not trying to be mean. Hey, well, bless God, I mean, we say some crazy things, but we don't ever stop to examine ourselves and say, no, why would I say something like that? I mean, I have a responsibility as a Christian, as a child of God, to be different and to be holy and to be modest and to identify with my gender. huh? Right. Amen. Amen. Folks, please listen. To me. You see what we got in our society now? Everybody here is against gender-neutral bathrooms in the schools. If you're not, I'm really wondering what, what's going on. So I'm going to have to convince you of that. But folks, please listen to me. Please listen to me. The problem did not begin with sodomite marriage. It did not begin with gender gender-neutral bathrooms. It began with the breakdown of the identity and the role between men and women. And when that distinction is removed, uh, whether we want to or not, we can be against sodomy, but we are lending our influence to something that is sodomite-friendly, whether that's our intention or not. I don't want to do that. I'm against that stuff. It's destroying our society. It's destroying our country. I don't want to do anything that even uh, without intent lends uh, uh, any kind of credibility to that. But when you have the breakdown of the genders, it leads to what we have. That's why in Deuteronomy 22 and verse 5, God said it was an abomination. The person that cross-dressed was an abomination. Not that their clothing was, they are. God, God sees in his foreknowledge where that goes, and it goes where we are today. And you and I shouldn't be partakers of it, folks. I'm going to be kind to somebody, no matter. I'm not going to be hateful with people because they don't practice what I preach. And I can take your living if you can take my preaching. I mean, if you can bear me getting up, voting the Bible, and preaching things that you're not practicing, I'm not attacking you. I'm trying to influence you. But I can't influence you if I'm too big a coward to mention it. huh? So if you're going to get offended at truth and you can't take the preaching of truth, nobody's going to be able to help you. The only thing that will help you is truth. And when truth becomes offensive, I have major problems in my heart. Something came out of the Bible. You know, that maniac, they said, well, we heard about it. And the Bible says in verse 35, they went out to see what was done. And when they got there, they saw something different. Here's a guy that wasn't wearing clothes. He was in a rage. Uh, He lived in the tombs enamored with death. He couldn't be bound with fetters. Everybody was afraid of him. He was ferocious. And all of a sudden, he's sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed, and in his right mind. And they said, whoa, huh? Can I tell you if the world sees that kind of transformation? They sit up and take notice. Oh, they need to hear. They're not going to get saved without hearing. But in addition to hearing, they need to hear the word of our testimony. What they see has a huge impact on them. And folks, please listen to me. What they're seeing in our independent Baptist people outside the doors of the church is not something that's going to make them believe. It's not just what you do on Sunday morning in church. My testimony is out there. It's out there. You know, Acts 4 and verse 14, bear with me, I'm about done. I'm trying to find a place to land, but it's foggy tonight, I don't know if you noticed. (laughs) But, I don't want to crash this thing on the way in. Acts 4 and verse 14. The man at the beautiful gate, the Bible says, uh, and beholding the man which was healed, standing with them, They could say nothing against it. They can argue with your doctrine, but tell me, how do you argue with a transformed life? Just what can you say to disprove what you see and it's real? They could say nothing against it. You know, the Bible tells us, not only does it tell us about that, uh, the Bible says... In verse 16, they, they, they said a notable miracle has been done, and we cannot deny it. Why? Well, there were at least two witnesses. They told him what changed the guy. When they looked at him, they couldn't argue. He was changed. He couldn't walk before, now he's walking, leaping, and praising God. And he said Jesus did it. Huh? You know, the Bible tells us the disciples passed through Lydda, and a man by the name of Aeneas who had been in a sickbed for eight years, was healed, and the response of the people is recorded in Acts 9, verse 35. It said, when they saw Him, not when they heard and that's it, they did hear. When they saw Him, they turned to the Lord. You know, maybe some of these people that are not paying much attention to what you say, if they saw something, Would turn to the Lord. If they saw something, it would empty their mouth of all their arguments. They could say nothing against it, but we give them too much ammunition uh, uh, to argue with what we say happened. You know, John the Baptist, John 1 verse 7, the Bible said, he came to bear witness of the light. So he witnessed of the light. In verse 29, you find them doing it. Behold, The Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. He pointed them to Jesus. But in John 5 and verse 35, uh, it says, He was a burning and a shining light. Oh, not only did he point them to the light, he himself was a burning and a shining light. He was a testimony of what the Lord Jesus can do in the life of a person. You know, Jacob was lied to by his sons and he thought Joseph was dead. And he grieved for a long time. The Bible said he would not be comforted. He wouldn't allow anybody to comfort him. He determined to be miserable. He determined not to get over it. And he was in that state for a long time. And when his sons came back from Egypt after Joseph revealed himself to them, he sent them down during the famine. And uh, when they came back and said, Joseph is yet alive. Well, that was the truth, wasn't it? That ought to make him happy, right? The Bible tells us when they told him Joseph is yet alive, he didn't believe it. It said his heart fainted. You know what he was saying? Don't give me hope again. I have grieved over this once. Don't give me hope and take it away. What they told him was true, but his heart fainted when he heard it. Ah, but the Bible says in verse 27 of Genesis 45, When he saw the wagons, his spirit revived, and he said, It is enough. Joseph is yet alive. There's too much evidence to deny. Nobody else would send all those wagons for me. Huh? It is enough. They had already told him Joseph was alive, and his heart fainted. Some of these people, you're telling them the Lord will save you like he saved me, and they're wondering, Yeah, but what happened when you got saved? I don't see much difference. I'm Catholic, you're Baptist, but what's the difference? You go to that church, I go to this church, but I don't see anything different. Huh? Ah, but when they see the wagons, it is enough. That transformed life. What God has done, the provision he has supplied. When he heard the message, his heart fainted. When he saw the wagons, he said, it is enough. My son Joseph is alive. I'm telling you, it's not enough to just tell them they need to see something. The word of your testimony speaks as loudly as the word of your witness and maybe louder. You know, and I had a fellow that I witnessed to. And uh, one night I witnessed to him and he looked at me and he said, I've been watching you. Now, be honest with you. That grieved my heart because I thought he was going to start dismantling me. I was a young Christian. I was headed the right direction as hard and fast as I could, but I had a ton of baggage. I was with the psalmist. He brought me also out of a horrible pit in the miry clay and set my feet upon a solid rock and established my goings, but I wasn't far out of the horrible pit in the miry clay, and I was doing everything I could to influence this guy, and he said, I've been watching you. And then a tear wandered down his cheek, and he said... I know what you have is real. I know that I need what you have. Could I tell you something? I didn't know he was watching me. The word of my testimony had an impact because I was not even close to being a great Christian and still not. Wasn't even close but there was enough substance and evidence for him to determine that what I had was real. Somebody is watching you tonight. Do they know what you have is real? I'm not talking about you putting on a show. I'm just talking about you being the real thing. Something that's undeniable all the time. In Second Corinthians 3, and verse 2, he said, "'Ye are our epistle written out in our hearts.'" known and read of all men you are an epistle so it's not only what you say it's what your life says and if what you say with your mouth that came from the scriptures that's true doesn't match what your life said it's going to hinder your efforts and damage the cause rather than being a help if you're going to be victorious and if you're going to reach a lost world you need the word of your testimony as well as the word of your witness. And it wouldn't be bad if you were yielded to the Holy Spirit of God and allowed Him, uh, as it says in Revelation 22 and verse 17, the Spirit and the bride say, Come. be a good thing if you operated in the power of the Holy Ghost. You'd have three witnesses then. I think that might be overwhelming for some people. And you wouldn't force them to do anything, but the evidence would be so powerful they could say nothing against it. It would be so powerful that they would turn to him when they saw it. God help us tonight. Preacher friend of mine took a young guy, it was a new Christian, go soul woman. They pulled up in front of a house and the young guy looked at him in panic. He said, what are we doing here? He said, we're going to go in here and witness to these people. He said, we can't do that. They know me. might be funny if it wasn't so true in so many cases god help us the word of your testimony is vital the word of your witness is vital and the word of your testimony and the word of the spirit of god working through you with two or three witnesses every word's established and people will turn to the lord but they don't just want the word of your witness they want the word of your testimony too And if the Spirit of God moved while you spoke to them, that would be bonus. It'd be three witnesses. Are you listening? The word of their testimony. Your walk talks and your talk talks. But your walk talks louder than your talk talks. What's it saying? What is the word of your testimony saying? I wonder now how many folks in this crowd can honestly say, Preacher, if I died where I sit... I'm hundred percent sure I'd go to heaven. I don't think I'm saved. Don't hope so. I'm born again and know that for sure. If you could honestly say that, slip a hand up good time. I'm saved and I know for sure I'm saved. All right. God bless you, you and put them back down. I want us to bow our heads for just a moment. I wonder tonight is there somebody that would say, preacher, I could not raise my hand, or maybe I did raise it, but in my heart I am not a hundred percent sure that if I die to go to heaven. Not sure I'm saved, but I have a desire. To be saved, please pray for me if that's you. Would you slip your hand up good and high so I can see it?